AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. The storm across the middle of the country is taking shape. We'll get an update on that. And CO2 pipelines create two very different reactions from landowners, from corn growers, and from ethanol producers. We'll hear from one of the pipeline companies. And let's get an update on the rail situation. Live from National Square Dancing Day via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. <laughs> <laughs> this morning we have Elizabeth Burns Thompson of Navigator CO2. We'll also have Brett Waltz of BAM WX. Is this Monday? This isn't Monday. No, we just have more no. weather to discuss. Yeah. In the final segment, Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition updates us on the railroad strike situation. Right after the news with Michelle Rook, Karen Boner shares a dairy story on producer Big Apple Joe Stackler. And now, wow. the host of AgriTalk, Chip Flory. All right. We got a lot to one do. Page. I mean, it's breath it's breathtaking how is, much we've got to do today. This is one full page of, of announcements <laughs> here. <laughs> you know, Joe, I never took you for much of a square dancer. No, not since sixth grade. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be the you'd be the sixth grader leaning up against the wall, one foot up. Mm. You know, just kind of hanging out and shaking your head. No, 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 I'm not right. going to do that. Nope. Which is yeah. what I say for pretty much any kind of dancing, frankly. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, thank you so much and welcome to AgriTalk. I am Chip Flory. Glad that you are with us this morning. And we do have a lot of ground to cover and helping us do that is Michelle Rook. Good morning, Michelle. Hey, good morning. How are things this morning? We're starting to get the rain uh moving in we're supposed to get some snow by the end of the day oh well you can keep it there <laughs> i don't know i don't know if we're going to or not we might share it with you out there in south bend before the end of the day There's yeah no we've already had more snow here let's see <laughs> in november than i had probably two years in south dakota so oh good grief good grief well welcome to the lake effect there's yes <laughs> <laughs> there's they warned me said for that yep yep all right what do you got in the news this morning well i know you're going to talk about this later in the show but late monday president joe biden called on congress to pass legislation immediately adopting a tentative agreement between railroad workers and operators that was approved by labor and management negotiators <laughs> in september without any modifications or delay to avert a potentially crippling Na national railroads shut down. Now, four of the 12 unions that represent the majority of U.S. freight railroad workers have voted down tentative agreements brokered by the White House. A strike could cost about $2 billion a day to the U.S. GDP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, and it, it sounds like the administration is very much in favor of taking steps of Congress, taking steps. We'll find out from Mike at the end of the show whether or not he thinks Pelosi can actually get the job done. All right, let's hope so, because that yep. would be a train wreck. Pardon the pun. Okay. Yeah. Yes, it would be. Uh, Monday, the U.S. also threatened legal action against Mexico's plan to ban imports of GMO corn in 2024, saying it would cause huge economic losses and significantly impact bilateral trade. Now, that followed a meeting between Mexico's president and Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, in which... 
The secretary said the government would consider all options, including taking formal steps to enforce the U.S.'s legal rights under USMCA. Now, Mexico was set to ban genetically modified corn in 2024, which would cause it to have its U.S. imports of yellow corn, although Mexico's ag minister had said recently that they might consider maybe taking GMO corn for feed at least. Yeah. It, it, have you seen the explanation of exactly why Mexico is looking to ban GMO? Uh, I think it's all political. I hate to say yeah, it. Yeah, it's ideological. Yeah. It, it th- This is not science-based at all. So to those that are saying, geez, should we really be telling a customer what they should buy or not buy? Number one, GMOs have been around for now, what, 25, 30 years? At least, Michelle? yeah. Yeah, at least. Um and so you're changing the rules of the game midway through. You you want the U.S. to be a reliable supplier of the product that you need. Well, why don't you be a reliable customer mm-hmm. and, and, and stick with the rules of the game that have been in place for a long, long, long time? Yeah, and this isn't the first time that they threatened to ban yeah. GMO corn, so... Well, oil prices rebounded yesterday amid a report OPEC Plus will seriously consider an output cut given overall market conditions, especially if crude prices fall much below their current level in the next week. OPEC will meet Sunday to decide on its next output level. Of course, there was a story last week in the Wall Street Journal, I believe, that they were actually going to consider production increases. So interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. uh, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration denied a request for truckers who transport livestock, insects, and aquatic animals to be exempt from some federal driving time regulations, according to a notice set to be published in the Federal Register. Several farm groups have asked for an exemption to allow for additional time on the road. On behalf of truckers moving the animals, the agency said it does not meet an acceptable safety level for drivers, although it is not really even realistic if you're out in farm country. Yeah, very true, very true. And Japan's parliament has given final approval to a deal amending a beef safeguard mechanism under the U.S.-Japan trade agreement. The change will reduce the probability of U.S. beef being hit with higher Japanese tariffs, and that is according to the U.S. Trade Representative's office. Okay, okay. All right, well, thank you very much, Michelle. We'll talk to you again this afternoon. Have a good one. All right. Uh, yeah, that's Michelle Rook. Let's bring in Karen Bonert, editor of Farm Journal's Mouth. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Chip. Okay, so two weeks to go until the Milk Business Conference out in Vegas. Are you ready to go? I am. It's set for December 13th to the 15th. Um, as you know all too well, it's really like no other dairy conference. Very conversational in tone. Yep. And really, what I think, Chip, is that we're really leaning on that dairy producer uh, to get their perspective on a multiple of issues, right? From labor retention to large dairy sustainability to talking about that water crisis out there, out, especially in the western part of the U.S. and so, so much more. Um, we have a great lineup. We have Nestle and Starbucks coming to the stage, and that conversation mm-hmm. should be very interesting. Um, I'm excited. We have a young producer panel. This is the first time in a long time and we'll ha- that we're going to have sp- – specifically a young producers talking about technology and their challenges that they're faced with on their farm and their future. Um, and mm-hmm. we have Art Shop, the New Mexico dairy producer who had to euthanize nearly 3,700 cows, yeah. sitting down with a one-on-one interview with Tyne. Uh, speaking of Tyne, she will also, uh, the U.S. Farm Report will be live there and she does a fantastic job. We have three 
leading experts that will talk about markets and news, which all of us are very, very interested in. Um, and you know what, you know what, Chip, it's all about getting off the farm, right? And networking, engaging, meeting someone who you didn't come to the conference with. And so this, uh, the conference really allows for you to learn in so many different areas, but really just kind of get other people's perspectives, um, whether it's experts or producers. Yep. You know, I love the fact that you're going to focus again on the demand from some of the franchises out there, because what has happened with those franchises, uh, you know, with McDonald's going mm-hmm. to, to real butter and Domino's and the use of of um, of all the cheese that they use now, this franchise demand is really something. Well, and those partnerships, um, I mean, is yeah. amazing what all I can do for dairy. So, yes, yep. we're excited about all of it. Um, and it's not Excellent. too late to, to, to get registered. So go over to MilkBusinessConference.com. MilkBusinessConference.com to get registered. Thank you, Karen. We'll talk to you later. That all right. Thanks, Karen Chip. Bonert, editor of Farm Journal's Milk. We've got Elizabeth Burns Thompson up next here on AgriTalk. AgriTalk is brought to you by Rumensen. Rumensen's quality, consistency, and efficiency make it the right choice for your cattle operation. Rumensen, trusted by generations. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. AgriTalk is brought to you by the Conservation at Work video series. Farmer to Farmer, the Conservation at Work video series features real stories, real successes, real quick. See what's possible at farmers.gov slash conservation. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Chip Laurie. Glad that you are with us this morning. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it uh, if you want to talk about an issue that creates all kinds of different reactions, the proposed CO2 pipelines for the middle of the country uh, generate several uh, different kinds of reactions. And to talk about those reactions and what's going on at Navigator CO2 Pipeline is Elizabeth Burns Thompson. She is the VP government uh, the VP of Government and Public Affairs for Navigator CO2. Elizabeth, it's good to talk with you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. So let's start with really the basics of this. Uh, who is Navigator CO2? What's the ownership team and some of the Navigator partners here? Sure. So Navigator at its core um, is a midstream company. So the, the folks that, that I work alongside, um, you know, have have designed, constructed and operated 
basically pipeline infrastructure in all different geographies and applications all around the United States. Um, what, what the team has done is pull together that expertise and, and really focus it in um, different part of the United States here in, in the Corn Belt um, and application into the CO2 space, which really has an interesting tie into, as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss in greater detail, um, applications into industries that are that are much different than maybe oil country because we, yeah. we sit in corn country here. Yep. Yeah. And some of the the, the partners that have uh, connected with Navigator through this, you've got BlackRock, Valero, Poet, uh, Siouxland Ethanol, I believe, is a partner on this. It's uh, it's quite the list of partners. We do. We have um, some of the biggest in the business. So between uh, Poet being the largest ethanol producer in the country and, and Valero coming in there at number two, um, we also have, have Big River on that uh, rankings. I think they come in around number four, number five. I'm not sure exactly um, okay. the, how the yep, li- yep. lineage is, but uh, but we also have standalone independent operators like Siouxland, um, which is over there in the eastern side of, of uh, Nebraska, uh, as well as fertilizer represented on the line. Okay. So we have uh, OCI or the Iowa Fertilizer Company down in Weaver, so way in the southeast corner of the state of Iowa, uh, that's participating in the technology and the infrastructure as well. Okay, so you've the 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 goal of Navigator is, is to move the CO two from these ethanol plants into a location where the CO two can be permanently sequestered. What does a company like Valero, like Poet, like, like Big River, Siouxland, what do they what do they hope to benefit from the partnership? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the projects are, are kind of talked about as being uh, carbon pipelines. Um, mm. You'll hear me regularly talk about them as carbon management platforms. Uh, okay. there, there is absolutely a pipeline as part of that, but but sequestration or effectively where we're taking that CO2 and, and injecting it underground is, is one piece of what this infrastructure does provide. At a bigger picture, so pulling that up to more 10,000 feet scale, uh, sure. what this infrastructure is looking to help solve is, is logistic challenges associated with management of CO2. Um, so, so in destination, or one of the in destinations of this line being that, that sequestration where they're, you know, effectively reducing carbon emissions by being able to sequester that under the ground. Um, but we also do utilize CO2 um, for a number of different applications, and, and especially in the, in the ag sector, when you look at the, the protein processing marketplaces right. as well. So, um, you know, our, our shippers on the line uh, do necessarily see CO2 as, as something that needs to necessarily be managed and, and, and infrastructure and being able to solve that problem such that they can more efficiently and effectively get that CO2 either to a marketplace that needs it um, and or opportunities for sequestration. Um, those that are familiar with ethanol know that, you know, there's a reason we call them ethanol plants. They were built at their core to take corn and turn it into a fuel. What, what, what we've, we've grown to be is truly biorefineries. When you think about the value in the marketplaces that have developed as it relates to the DDGs, as it relates to corn oil, uh, something I'm really familiar with having just come out of the, the biodiesel and the renewable diesel sector. Uh, but the last remaining piece of that, that co-product or byproduct really is CO2. And so there, there's an opportunity here to, much like we've done with all of those other byproducts, turn them into valuable co-products if we've got the infrastructure and markets in gotcha. place to be able to support that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So how do we get these benefits? And I'm thinking primarily the financial benefits of this uh, of this management, the CO2 management back to the corn growers. 
Sure. So, so one of that is, is um, you know, the value of the markets for the, for the grain to begin with. You know, when you look at uh, the positive basis that's come back into many communities, it's, it's by, by boosting demand, that's, that's having a number of, of places for you to deliver to, frankly. Um, and so as ethanol plants are able to also access more highly valuable markets, um, that, that's beneficial not only for them, but then ultimately, you know, what they can provide back into the marketplace. I think twofold, also looking ahead at the opportunity there, we talk a lot about carbon and not necessarily just carbon as it relates to fuels, but but farmers are talking about carbon day in and day out as it relates to practices on their farms too. These two activities absolutely work hand in hand, not one but for the other. So just like how the the plants themselves are beginning to, to differentiate that value, associated with each gallon that's coming out of the facility, so too are farmers looking at being able to differentiate the value on a carbon basis on every bushel that's coming off of their farm and thus into these marketplaces. And those two things, you know, technology um, will help ensure that that happens even more effectively and then thus that that valuation, you know, can be differentiated as well. So, Carbon, um, you know, I, I, I talk to producers day in and day out. We are already used to quantifiable characteristics that determine yeah. the value of the commodities we bring to market. We measure moisture, we measure FM, we me- measure damage, right? Every time you go across the scale, carbon has the potential to be much the same way. Interesting. Okay. So companies or organizations like RFA, the Renewable Fields Association, Growth Energy, are supportive of the uh, of these pipelines. And they see it as a as an, a way to get to net zero on the carbon footprint for ethanol, correct? Absolutely. In fact, um, I think many of them have come forward and say that, you know, there really isn't a technological way for us to reach that net zero pledge without rather robust industry-wide adoption of carbon capture technology. And you can see that when you look at the charts of, of what tools are in the toolbox for decarbonization. Um, you can effectively reduce that carbon score of a gallon of ethanol by nearly 50% by adoption of this technology. Right, right. Okay, so when I talk with with farmers that have attended one of the CO2 pipeline meetings, that we we usually end up in about the same spot, and that spot comes down to the right-of-ways. Uh, they remain skeptical that they will be adequately compensated uh, for, for giving the okay for the pipeline on their land. And and beyond that, they're concerned that if a landowner does not come to an agreement with the right of way, that it will be taken via eminent domain. How does Navigator address those concerns? Absolutely. No, and I think th- those are good points. And um, I want to start with with just to highlight that that we absolutely understand all of those concerns. Um, I myself am a farm kid from Eastern Iowa, so I I personally know and appreciate that intangible valuation that's associated with ground and especially farmland that's that's been in in families sometimes for generations upon generations. So I think not shying away from tough conversations about that is is step one. Uh, Step two is is outlining first that that our goal is to reach a, a value that's fair and equitable. Um, that's that value is necessarily in the eyes of the beholder. And this is a negotiation. So, you know, we're out there starting with initial offers, um, but but getting to a point that's fair and equitable necessarily is a conversation um, and a negotiation. And, and, and we want to go out and have those 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 conversations in, in a collaborative fashion with folks. Um, and I think lastly is, uh, you know, the, the, the questions about eminent domain. I I 
I think it's unfortunate how that has been portrayed to the public, uh, such that it's presented as if this is a, a trump card that, that we hold in our back pocket. And that's not the case. Um, if you think about the just the basic tenets of eminent domain at its core, it really doesn't make a lot of business sense. And in large part, it doesn't save us time, it doesn't save us money, and it doesn't make us any friends. And any business would tell you that those are three critical points to not only being successful in the short term, but, but long term viability and operations. So when we say that this is absolutely a tool of last resort, it not only makes sense from a practical manner, but truly from a business sense as well. Yeah. Uh, but but the bottom line is it is an, an option that that the pipelines consider viable. It, it's a tool that is is available in um, different jurisdictions under different pretenses. So to say that there is a blanket application or a blanket threshold associated with eminent domain is is an oversimplification as well. Okay. Each state does it a little bit differently. So um, you know, ha- happy to walk through those in, in greater detail too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll probably have to do that, Elizabeth. I cannot believe that we're out of time already. Good grief. So let's uh, let's make sure that we get together again on this topic and and continue the conversation. Okay, we'd love to do so. Excellent. That is Elizabeth Burns Thompson. She is the VP for Government and Public Affairs for the Navigator CO2 pipeline. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. Joining us now, ProFarmer editor Brian Grady-Beach. We've got some plus signs in most of the grain markets this morning. Even wheat is trying to get back some of yesterday's losses. Yeah, corrected buying in the wheat market, Chip. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a rough go here recently for bulls. And, and uh, so to see a little bit of uh, price strength uh, to, on corrected buying probably isn't too much of a surprise here. Uh, we'll see if it can be maintained into the close. I think that that's the critical one. Uh, the other one is uh, soybeans uh, continue to push higher here and, and trading really strong technically, uh, looking at a potential upside breakout uh, above the November high. So still got a little bit of work to do to get that um done and that may be a little bit more difficult now with uh, meal futures trading to the downside soy oils come well off their highs from earlier in the session and trading with a mixed tone uh, so uh, kind of keeping an eye on the crude oil market there and, and how that'll impact things and then corn uh, you know just modestly higher about a penny or so here at yeah. uh, mid morning corn doesn't act like it even wants to participate in anything right now does it no, not, you know, not to the upside, not to the downside, right. just kind of continues to grind sideways here. Yep. Yep. No question. Okay. Take us over to the livestock trade. 
after a big day down yesterday in lean hogs we've got a little bit of strength yeah just a little bit and probably was overdone to the downside to be honest with you i mean a lot of that was technical based selling like i mentioned yesterday and uh just you know got overdone and and uh, so we'll see a little bit of corrective trade but until we see the uh, cash market put in a seasonal yeah. low i think that uh, the buyer interest will be limited there on the cattle side of things uh corrective uh, gains in feeder cattle and then uh, live cattle are, are being supported by expectations that the, the cash market will farm again this week. Gotcha. Good stuff, Brian. That is Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. The chickens have come home to roost. Find out whose fence they're perched on today on AgriTalk. All right, welcome back to AgriTalk. Interesting conversation right there with Elizabeth Burns Thompson from Navigator CO2. We will have her back on. And if you've got questions about the the CO2 pipelines, we did not get to the safety issue. I want to do that in the future with Elizabeth. Uh, uh, just how safe are the CO2 pipelines? So we we will get her back on and we will cover that as well. Uh, but if you've got any questions about these uh, these pipelines, I'd love to hear them, and we will be sure to get with uh, not just Elizabeth. We will we will include Summit Pipeline in the conversations as well. All right, it's not Monday; it is Tuesday. But joining us now is Brett Waltz, meteorologist, BamWX.com. Brett, hey buddy, thanks for making time for us. Hey, of course, Chip. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad that you are here because we've got these storm systems that the, the, the storms do seem to be developing along that front, just as we talked about yesterday. What do you make of, of how things are progressing with this front? Yeah, for sure. So uh, overall, the environment, I think, as we work further throughout the day, it is still going to be pretty favorable for uh, the development of strong, severe storms, likely maybe a couple of supercells in there as well. And those will be the ones that we need to watch. And I would say, especially from, say, uh, Greenville, Mississippi, down towards Jackson, just east of Monroe, Louisiana, it's going to be in that area that I think that we'll need to watch. Let's say, you know, two, three, four o'clock this afternoon for those supercell storms to develop and start to track to the northeast and potentially lead to a couple of tornadoes, maybe a couple of stronger long-track tornadoes. That's not 100% out of the question. Uh, But as you mentioned, we're already getting storms to fire up to the north. Those are going to contain a wind threat as well, probably hail, and that threat extends all the way up into parts of western Kentucky and southwestern Indiana. Yeah, already we've got the the some severe storms that look like they're developing in northeast Arkansas, northwest yep. Mississippi. As a matter of fact, do I see that there is a, a severe thunderstorm warning right now yes. in Mississippi? Yes, there is a severe thunderstorm warning right now. That looks like it's going to last until about 1045 central time. Um, that one just kind of zooming in on it right now. Uh, to me, that is one that probably could contain some hail, um, pretty, pretty high reflectivity with that on the radar. Um, but, but really any of these storms, and I think it just goes to show it's only, it's only 1030 central Eastern that the environment today is ripe for strong to severe storms, whether it's tornadoes, wind, hail, 
um, anywhere down there is going to be at risk for severe weather for really any storm that develops, especially the further into the afternoon that we go. Yeah, Brett, when 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 we asked you to come on the show, I thought it was still going to be a hey heads up. It, 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 we we've got the potential for some severe weather out there because of the timing of the day. But here it is, like you just said, 1030 in the morning central time. And we've already got some of the severe storms out there. To me, that signals the overall strength. It does not suggest to me that these storms are going to burn out early. No. And and these, these are kind of, these initial storms are draped along a boundary um, where I I think that because of the, because of all of the activity this morning, that maybe that would help in terms of limiting some of the tornadic activity in northern Mississippi, okay. southern Tennessee mm-hmm. later. So that is at least a piece of good news. But a- as you've already seen, there is plenty of wind energy to work with this. Even these that it will not be tornadic can still be dangerous uh, in terms of wind mm-hmm. and hail. And then I think what we're going to have to watch for let's say, let's call it the main show, the biggest severe weather risk. Yeah, yeah. That's That that still is going to be a ways out. That's still, you know, two, three, four o'clock this evening, probably picking up in northeastern Louisiana and then tracking east as we work towards six, seven o'clock across central Mississippi. Those are going to be the ones that I am most concerned about in terms of potentially producing some tornadoes. Is I think that... that yeah, go ahead. Is that the bullseye uh, for for the the highest risk of severe weather down in Mississippi, or is it up in that Tennessee Kentucky area? You know, Tennessee Kentucky shouldn't let their guard down because okay. uh, you know an isolated tornado, uh, maybe some strong wind gusts. I don't think that's impossible. But the bullseye for the highest tornadic threat is certainly in Mississippi, just east okay. of Monroe, Louisiana. Let's say we'll start there and work northeastward from there. Vitz, uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, Jackson, mm-hmm. Mississippi, Greenville, Mississippi, uh, and then really even into northwestern Alabama, not as far as Huntsville, but uh, a couple of counties west of Huntsville, Alabama. That is where I think the biggest issues in terms of tornado activity could be. You know, but again, yeah. I, I think that if there's a risk, I think that if there is a risk as far as you know, this forecast underperforming in terms of tornadoes, it okay. would be kind of on that northern edge because of the storms we're already seeing this morning. That's common in these late season setups where you get the storms early in the day. Sometimes the atmosphere struggles to recover. So Memphis, um, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, and just points to the West, maybe that area could get a little bit lucky if somewhere does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for those of you that might think, ah, come on, it's the end of November, first part of December, we can't get that severe of a storm we're coming up on the one year anniversary mm-hmm. of some terrible storms that rolled up through the Ohio river Valley. Yep. Yep. So it happens. It does happen. And it, it, in fact, really it happens more frequently October, November, and even early December than it hmm. does some other parts of the year, just because of the clashing of, of air masses. It's, it's not as uncommon as people think now last year, December 10th, that was extreme for sure. Yeah. Um, but certainly one that it will be in our memory banks for oh, yeah. probably forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's shift our attention further to the north, Brett, because we've got a storm system that ranges from southeast Colorado up through Kansas, central Nebraska, eastern Nebraska, northwest Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, that uh, is is 
it, to me, this looks like a very organized kind of system that might suggest we're getting into a pattern change, at least for a period of time. Yeah. And, and I think that we are. Um, I, I think that the further we work into December, number one, that the storm track is going to get more active. Um, we're already seeing it with this storm system. We've got precipitation from Canada all the way down to the Gulf Coast. I can't remember the last time that's happened in one big system. Um, and, and this is a compact system, too, a stronger low pressure system and some decent snowfall rates right now up in parts of the upper Midwest, parts of Minnesota. Um, you know, when all is said and done, a couple of areas could get five to eight inches of snow um, today as a whole, you know, considering what's already fallen, what is still to come. So this is really the first bigger one, I would say, of, mm -hmm. of the year that I can recall, at least. And I think that especially across the north central U.S., until we get this cold air to dump further south, I do think that there will be more snowfall chances. Um, I think that your best threats are going to be probably North Dakota, maybe South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, that area. But at the very least, better snow potential than what we've seen so far this season, I would say over the next 10 days. Okay. All right. So some of the outlooks that I've seen, Brett, and, and I, I don't know if this is the, the BAM WX outlook or not, but over the next couple of weeks, talking about as much as 20 inches in some areas of, of central and southern Minnesota, does that kind of jive with what you're seeing? Yeah, you know, I I not I'm not going to speculate on exact okay. totals over two of over a two week period. Yeah, but I, I I do think that could there be some areas that get more than a more than a foot of snow <laughs> over the next two weeks? I don't I don't think that's impossible. Again, I, I'd be looking at you know parts of Minnesota, northern Wisconsin for that greatest threat. Um, but I won't speculate on, on 20 inches plus of snow. I think that's probably premature gotcha. at this distance, but I think that more active for sure up, up gotcha. in the upper Midwest. And I would say, especially for Minnesota, Wisconsin, if I had to pinpoint an area, um, there will be additional chances up there. The next system will probably start to ramp up as we work into, uh, early next week. That will kind of be the next one to watch, but you know, we're seven days, eight, seven, seven yeah. days out on that. Um, a lot can change between now and then. Okay. So as the system makes its way to the East, what happens as it gets into the great lakes area? Is it going to give us some of those snow totals? Like we saw what, uh, <laughs> 10 days ago? Uh, no, not, not quite that much. Okay. Uh, there will be probably some, some lake effect, um, with this out, out in New York or along Lake Erie, but I'm not expecting this one to produce anywhere quite the same okay. amount of snow and part of the <laughs> reason for that. that yeah there will be some light lake effect no doubt about it up there um, even along lake michigan up in northern michigan but the difference with this particular air mass is it's just not as cold um, this air mass gotcha. does not have as much cold air associated with it but i i think that that could change as we work into the middle part of december so i don't think the lake effect machine is done yet this year but I, I do think this one is certainly lackluster compared to what we had there a couple of weeks ago. Gotcha. Gotcha. Only got about 45 seconds left here, uh, Brett, but I got to ask any pattern changes that, uh, to note down in South America. So some good news for South America, at least in regards to Brazil. Uh, I do think that there can be some precipitation there over the next seven days, maybe some spots getting decent precipitation up towards Mato Grosso. But I, I think beyond that, and especially for Argentina, 
going to continue to struggle with a lack of moisture, hotter and drier. Um, really no big change there. Man, I tell you what, Argentina just seems like it is stuck in that pattern, yeah. that trend, and cannot get out of it. So It um, is a bad deal for sure. Yeah, yeah, it is starting to whittle away at the crop estimates even more uh, as, as time goes on here. Brett, you're such a resource for us. Hey, man, thank you so much for coming on and making time for us. Yep, absolutely, Chip. We appreciate you having us on. Excellent. That is Brett Waltz, meteorologist, BAMWX.com. We're going to talk the rail situation with Mike Steenhook next. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. We've cleared the schedule for you. Give us a call at 855-482-5524 and join the conversation. Okay, we're talking on Chip Flory. We've got Mike Steenhook standing by. First, let's make time for Yields in the Field. Yields in the Fields on Agritalk is brought to you by Microessentials from Mosaic, the science of more. Discover our proven products. Text YIELDS to 31313. All right, this is a little bit of a different take, but we've got to keep a close eye on what's happening down in South America, too, as we were just talking about with Brett Waltz. Uh, soybean planting reached 87% done in Brazil. That's according to Ag Rural. Uh, that is slightly behind the 90% pace last year at this time. The consulting firm forecasts that Brazil production will reach 150.5 million metric tons on a planted area of 43.2 million hectares. Uh, that goes along with trendline yields, that 150.5 million metric tons, that is more than five and a half billion bushels of soybeans. Yields in the field brought to you by Microessentials from Mosaic. Mike Steenhook is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He joins us right now. Mike, welcome back. How are you? I am doing fine, Chip. Good to be with you. Good. Okay. What's the status? We've got President Biden has basically told Congress, uh, let's make sure that we keep these rails up and running. Yeah, and I, I, th- I thought it was a very strong statement, and I, I applaud uh, him, him weighing in on it. That's something that, that a lot of agricultural stakeholders, uh, Soy Transportation Coalition included, have really been urging the administration and congressional leaders to intervene. It was, it was becoming quite apparent once, once the once we once all of the twelve worker unions actually had a chance to vote on that tentative agreement that was achieved on September fifteenth, 
And when we saw that four of the 12 still voted against it, yes. there really seemed to be kind of at an impasse. And so then there's this looming deadline of December 8th, which is the last day of negotiations with a potential strike occurring on December 9th. And so it became quite apparent with this impasse, the increased likelihood of some kind of shutdown, uh, it was really time to intervene and really bring this to a conclusion. And, I, and so the, the, the comment, the, the, the words that I really saw that jumped out to me in the president's statement is when he was saying things like, without delay, immediate, yeah. we don't need to be walking up to this precipice. Uh, we need something to be finalized now. Um, our industry depends upon it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It does. The economy depends on it. Um, it okay. I, I, I need to, uh, we, we need to make sure that people understand exactly what is going on because I've seen some comments out on social media that say, now I'm what I'm about to say is wrong. What I'm about to say is wrong, but it's just an example of some of the things that are, are circulating out there on social media. You know, the comments are, well, eight of the 12 unions have voted against it. That's the only reason that we can still see a see a strike. No, no, that's exactly wrong, because eight have ratified eight of the 12 have ratified four have voted down the agreement. And it doesn't matter if it's the biggest or the smallest union that would decide to go on strike. If they go on strike, the other union workers are not going to cross a picket line. Right? Yeah, out of out of solidarity. So you needed to have all twelve actually vote to ratify, and yeah, there's the the largest union has about thirty seven thousand employees, a lot of conductors, engineers, etc. The smallest one actually, the Boilermakers, is only five hundred employees. Let's say even even if just the smallest of the unions that the, the Boilermakers voted against it, they would not cross the picket lines out of solidarity. Now, obviously, there would be pressure on that remaining holdout union to actually ratify. But yeah, that was something that was understood all along. You needed all 12 of them to vote to ratify the agreement. Yeah. You know, I think that is something that was understood right from the very beginning, Mike. But this has gone on for so long that some of the observers are making up observations as this goes on, trying to say, well, you know, there's a reason that this is happening. Anyway, anyway, I just hope that people have their stories right. What are the chances that Speaker Pelosi is going to be able to get this done? I think it's really high because I I, I think I think the Republicans will support it because um, the railroads are they're fine with the that that tentative agreement that was basically the recommendations of this presidential emergency board and. I, mean, I think no one really is going to be helped politically by seeing a railroad strike. Now, I think there will be some on the Democratic side that will say they needed to hold out more to get more concessions for yeah. the, the workers. But when you've got you know, the president urging it, and again, remember, the Presidential Emergency Board recommendations that, that was the, really the, the, the bedrock of that tentative agreement, that was his appointees, President Biden's appointees. Right. And so given that, that that fact, given the fact that eight of the 12 have voted to ratify, only four have voted against it, the fact that no one, people need, our elected officials need a railroad strike like they need a hole in the head. Yes. So, I, so I, I, I do think, I think there will be pretty quick, my, again, my crystal ball suggests there'll be pretty quick passage of this. I think maybe some Democrats well, will hold out, 
but I think the Republicans will vote strongly support it and a sizable number of Democrats as well. Well, I hope that's the case, Mike, because it's not just a, a get to December 9, see a strike, and that's when it starts to have, have an impact on ethanol producers and, and grain shippers and fuel shippers and, and fertilizer companies because they all need to prepare for the potential of a strike. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just kind of the thing is there's certain industries like agriculture, particularly for using freight railroads, is that there's a pretty elongated time. If you're going to dial down your operations, that's a multiple day yeah. experience. And restarting is a multiple day experience. It's not like you run a lemonade stand and it's just like, well, you just 15 minutes, you're able to set up and tear down. So that's something that if we wouldn't have, if we don't see an agreement on this, we would see curtailment of rail service starting early, late this week and definitely throughout the course of next week. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. All right, Mike. Hey, buddy, thank you so much for keeping us up to speed on what's going on here. We'll continue to lean on you for some more information as time goes on. All right. Sounds good, sir. All right. Thank you very much. That is Mike Steenhook. He is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Wow. A lot of information in today's show. I hope uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. I know I did. You got to come back this afternoon. I've got Jim McCormick from MegMarket.net. And tomorrow morning, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, along with the Farmer Forum right here on AgriTalk.